to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Natural MD Radio. This is your host, Dr. Aviva Ram, and today I have the pleasure of bringing to you a guest who's not only my dear friend, so we're going to have a personal chat as if this were coming from my living room, but one of the foremost trauma specialists and healers in the world. My dear friend, Dr. James Gordon, the author of the forthcoming book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma, is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a world-renowned expert in using mind-body medicine to heal depression, anxiety, and psychological trauma. He's the founder and executive director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, a clinical professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Family Medicine at Georgetown Medical School, and served as chairman of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Dr. Gordon has created groundbreaking programs of comprehensive mind-body healing for physicians, medical students, and other health professionals for people with cancer, depression, and other chronic illnesses, and for traumatized children and families in Bosnia, Kosovo, Israel, Gaza, Haiti, and Syrian refugees in Jordan, in post-9-11 New York, and post-Katrina Southern Louisiana, with Native Americans on Pine Ridge Reservation, and for veterans and active duty military. He's also the author of Unstuck, Your Guide to the Seven-Stage Journey Out of Depression. In The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma, Dr. Gordon offers the first comprehensive evidence-based program for reversing the biological and psychological damage trauma does, and for discovering and growing through its challenges to become who we're meant to be. Jim, thank you so much for joining me on Natural MD Radio today. Thank you, Aviva. It's always good to be with you. Jim, I'd love to divide our time today, it'll be seamless, but into two big topic areas that I know are also very important to you and that I think are going to be relevant to the audience that's listening, which is mostly women and a lot of moms. And, you know, I've just been preparing a talk this week that I'm giving on uh, women and pain. And one of the kind of issues that rises to the top for me in this research is the growing body of knowledge, but the under-addressed um, uh, awareness by clinicians, particularly phys physicians, and importantly, in the opioid crisis that we're facing right now, of trauma on people's experience of pain in their life. And pain, of course, takes many forms. And for women, particularly, the risks and prevalence of domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, at work abuse, and, and just sort of internalized um, trauma around the um, fears of being a woman um, seems so, uh, so important to me to address. And I wonder if that's something that we might talk about for a little bit. And then in the second half, I'd really love to talk with you about your work that you're doing in Parkland and how we can address the concerns and actual worries and fears of parents, moms, as kids are um, in school every day. So if we could start with trauma and pain and, and what your thoughts and experiences are on that, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I think what you're making a very important point is that because of the experiences that so many children and particularly so many female children have of being abused or treated objectified or diminished in various ways psychologically that that often translates into a vulnerability to a variety of different kinds of physical pain uh, so sometimes just when if we're abused as children and if we're made anxious all the time it makes us much less able to deal with any kind of stress later in life so that the pain that we may have with a relatively minor condition can become magnified so that's one piece of it 
The other piece is that so many girls, I mean, horribly, tragically experience one or another kind of sexual abuse. And so later in life, we know that those girls are much more vulnerable to experiencing uh, frequent urinary tract infections, uh, <clears throat> you know, other kinds of hormonal disorders, all the things that you know about so well. And it's that the early pain is not only psychological, but is also felt physically. They feel it in their bodies. And so as they grow older, uh, they and become more vulnerable to actual physical illnesses, that pain, again, is magnified. And, you know, I think the, the other thing is that there's a, a self-consciousness that so many girls, unfortunately, have. I mean, you see girls who are, you know, so free and so easy up to the age of 7, 8, 9, 10, and then all of a sudden they get so self-conscious about their bodies and the way they hold themselves. So they're, you know, kind of hunched over and, you know, apprehensive. It's understandable, but it causes all kinds of musculoskeletal problems as well. So this is psychological trauma or the threat of it causing physical problems later in life. And of course, the physical problems themselves are traumatic. And therefore, it becomes a vicious cycle. The, the other thing about trauma that you know, as you as you well know, is that when we're psychologically traumatized, one of the ways we try to deal with it is by eating foods that help to restore some, at least temporarily some kind of biological balance. Eating though, and I have a whole chapter on uh, comfort foods and also how to create a trauma healing diet. But what happens is when we're traumatized, if we're seriously traumatized, often we don't feel like eating at all. And that kind of the whole digestive tract shuts down, more often we'll be eating a lot of sweet, fatty, salty foods, which in turn um, lower our levels of cholesterol, increased dopamine and serotonin, kind of feel-good hormones. But in the long run, they deplete those hormones and uh, our stress hormones, uh, you know, we're no longer able to deal with stress well. Meanwhile, we're putting on the weight, uh, the abdominal fat and the intra-abdominal fat, which in turn puts out more stress hormones, and that becomes a vicious cycle. So it's all that the physical issues with both pain and physical illness are intimately connected with the psychological issues of trauma and the challenges to, to break the whole cycle on a psychological as well as on a physical level. And just for, for listeners, Jim, um, not to correct you, but just so people understand, you mentioned that court cholesterol goes down, but it's, it's cortisol that goes down when we self-soothe with food. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's soothing to us. It it lowers is. It's really amazing. When I was working on the adrenal thyroid revolution, um, and I talk about that uh, in that book, the really powerful cycle between the calming experience of what happens when we eat a carbohydrate and it actually soothes our brain, that it really does become a matter of self-medicating with food. And um, it, it always reminds me of there's a television commercial that I saw maybe when I was a kid where this woman is very stressed out and her shoulders are all hunched and she gets a, a dove chocolate. It was like, I remember it was a dove chocolate and she bites into the chocolate and she's like, ah, and that's always that Im image I have of food and cortisol. So you talked but, a lot about how, oh, go ahead. It's important that when women or for that matter, men are going through this, that you be a little compassionate for yourself. You may need that comfort food for a while. And uh, what I what I try to you know convey, what I hope I do convey in the transformation is, all right, you understand that's what's going on and just become aware of it. And then little by little, become more mindful about what you're eating and begin to make the changes in the diet. And don't beat yourself up for doing it. This is a, this is, this is, as you say, this is the way we try to self-soothe when we're traumatized, when we're going through a really hard time. Jim, one of the practices that I know that you do, uh, both at workshops that I've attended where we've co-taught at conferences together or, uh, you do in large scale settings. I know you've done this with 
tens of thousands of people, for example, in Haiti, is movement. You have people stand up and listen to music and just close their eyes if they if their balance is good and if they can, if they want to keep their eyes open, that's fine. Just put on music and just gently start to shake and release. Yep. Is part of this a way to um, use your body to release areas where that trauma does get stored in the body? Yeah, I think, I think the, the approach that we use at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, the approach I describe in, in the transformation, involve, very much involves the body. And I, I would say there are two fundamental pieces to it. The first one is simply learning how or remembering how to breathe slowly and deeply with the belly soft and relaxed, which is the antidote to the fight or flight response. It activates the vagus nerve, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, balances the fight or flight of the sympathetic nervous system, and quiets activity in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is responsible for fear and anger. So that's one approach that's absolutely fundamental. The second one, which is just as important in its way, is exactly what you described. It would get people up shaking their bodies and People can look on our website and see us, see me teaching, shaking and dancing and see people doing it all over the world. Just standing up with your feet shoulder width and your knees a little bit and shaking your body for five minutes or 10 minutes or so and then relaxing for a minute or two and then letting your body move to music. And what that does is it addresses that other part of trauma that we experience so often, that freeze response when trauma is overwhelming and we shut down and everything, you know, we're kind of shut down and withdraw. And it's a, it's just like fight or flight. The freeze response is a survival response and it's great for a few minutes, but when it goes on for hours and days and weeks, as it does with so many of us when we're traumatized, our bodies become stiff and tense, our thoughts are repetitive, we ruminate, we're going over the same terrible thing that happened to us, and the shaking and dancing begins to break up those patterns and allows us a certain, breaks up the patterns, and then the dancing allows us a little freedom and to get back in touch with the body that trauma has alienated us from, especially if that trauma is physical or sexual, we often feel, or if we have a serious chronic illness, we feel like, you know, I I don't really feel at home in my body anymore. And the shaking and dancing, and I've seen this thousand with thousands and thousands of people, they begin to feel, Oh, you know, this is my body. You know, I'm glad to be in it. It feels good. I can move it again. So those two approaches are really very simple They have a powerful physical, physiological, and psychological effect, and anybody can do them. Uh, We do shaking and dancing. People say, well, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. That's okay. You can shake. I was just down in uh, Puerto Rico. There's a wonderful woman with multiple sclerosis who's a social worker who wants to learn how to use our method to help other people there. And she was in her wheelchair, and she was shaking away and dancing away and just there with all of us. So anyone can do these techniques. What you say about becoming almost disembodied is so, um, it's really truly heart wrenching to me when I think about it. I was just, um, with a patient recently who had, um, been sexually assaulted and she has spent the last couple of years really working to be able to feel again. And what she said was it really took being able to thank her body because she realized how much her body was working, how hard her body was actually having to work to keep her from feeling like she had dissociated her body from her body so much. It was such a beautiful thing to hear her say that she could now thank her body and feel her body again. And I've I've seen it's exhausting as 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 she was pointing as she was saying to you. Yes, it does take so much energy, and people who've been traumatized who are protecting themselves become exhausted. With I mean, on a on a physical level, it's uh, exhaustion. The 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 hippocampus and the brain isn't working so well. The whole system is starts to shut down, and this is a way of 
bringing life back into the into the into the human. <laughs> Jim, I've heard people say yourself, Bessel van der Kolk, um, uh, Gabor Mate, others that there's the trauma that happens, but then trauma may also be defined as not just the event that happened, but in a way being trapped in the event so that your life is just sort of uh, uh, a feeling that you can't ever really get out of that. What happened in that event for you, whether that was fight or flight. And as for so many women with physical trauma, it's, it's freezing. Can you talk about that experience? What, what trauma really is and um, what, how we get locked into it like that? Yeah. Well, well, trauma the, the word is, it's a Greek word, it means injury, injury to the body, to the mind, to the spirit. And trauma, trauma's going to, first of all, trauma's going to come to all of us. I think this is, this is really important to know that life is not without trauma. If it doesn't come early in our life, it's going to come in middle age with crises, with relationships or kids or physical illness. And it's certainly going to come. Wow, as- that was really loud thunder. I heard that at your... Oh, <laughs> at your house. Well, you you think that's the gods announcing, sort of punctuating what we're saying here? Well, for, for you guys who are listening, we've already had to start the recording over once because Jim was in another room and it started raining, which was fine, but then there was a full-on hailstorm. <laughs> okay, sorry to interrupt you. That was just so loud. So so when trauma comes, it upsets us it it causes basically it causes two different kinds of reactions. One is it throws our system into disorder and chaos. We become anxious, we become agitated, have difficulty sleeping, have difficulty focusing, and then it also tends to shut us down and keep us anchored and keep us kind of surrounded by and stuck in those traumatic events. So we replay the trauma in our mind. We have uh, nightmares about it. We have flashbacks about it. And then we also withdraw as if the trauma were a, a predator out there that we have to stay away from. And what happens after the trauma, after the events, is that we stay in that state. When animals suffer a life-threatening event, and you can see this in the films of uh, you know gazelles on the Serengeti plain in Africa, when animal, when a, a lion comes after a gazelle, either the lion eats the gazelle and the story's over, or the gazelle gets away, and two minutes later, you can see her happily eating. And yep, they're right back at the watering hole, like nothing happened. That's what I always say. But we humans carry the trauma around in our emotional brain, in our cognition, in every part of our consciousness, in our gut. And so trauma becomes a kind of fixation uh, and it continues. It's not just the event. It's the event uh, continuing to replay itself in our body, in our mind, in our spirit, and in our disordered, disrupted relationships with other people because we don't feel as comfortable getting close to them. So the approach in the transformation essentially is to bring people to break up those fixed physical patterns to balance out the fight or flight response, to bring people into the moment, into the present moment in which change is happening, as opposed to that traumatic residue, which keeps us stuck in the past and worried about the future. And that's why meditation is so central to the approach in the transformation, the approach that we use all over the world, because meditation is relaxed moment-to-moment awareness here and now. And that's more thunder to <laughs> punctuate what we're saying here. That's what's crucial for people. And there are many kinds of meditation. I mean, we I just described the concentrative meditation of slow, deep, soft belly breathing, and the active, expressive meditation of shaking and dancing. And we also use mindfulness meditation, becoming aware of your thoughts feelings and sensations as they arise. All of those forms of meditation can be helpful and can be used to help us move through and beyond trauma. Jim, you studied psychiatry at Harvard. 
I studied internal medicine at Yale, and certainly we have some decades between us. Um, when I was at Yale studying psychiatry, I found that my experience with many of the older psychiatrists who had done psychotherapy work was really um, much more about under understanding empathy and compassion, and also things like transference and projection. So, for example, me as a practitioner, uh, learning to uh, really understand my own body sensations and how that related to what I was experiencing with someone else was something that was very natural to me as a midwife. But in medicine, the only place where I ever was exposed to that kind of transpersonal consciousness was in psychiatry. But my experience with most psychiatry, not to be disparaging to the profession, but the reality is, is that it seems like more psychiatrists these days are writing prescriptions and some have practices where they're really not even doing therapy anymore. They're just literally seeing patients and billing for prescription refills. Um, what, what, what did you learn as a psychiatrist that you consider still to be valuable in your work now? Where do you feel like psychiatry may be falling short in understanding trauma? And, and what are, um, what are the therapists or places to turn for people who think they may have had trauma and would like to explore it or know they had trauma? You know, is psychiatry really the place to go anymore? What, what do we need to look for? That's, that's, that's a great question. The, for me, the, the most important part of what I learned in psychiatry, uh, and I'll use a, a quote from one of my teachers, not at Harvard, but, uh, but R.D. Lang. Mm -hmm. And he said, psychotherapy is about the attempt of two people to recover the wholeness of being human between them. Mm, that's beautiful. And that's what it really is. And that's, you know, that's in a sense what Freud was leading us toward. When I was in medical school, I was in therapy with Robert Coles, who was, uh, who lived that kind of approach. Lang lived it. And all my, you know, my best teachers, wherever they were at Harvard or Albert Einstein or some of the people I knew at the National Institute of Mental Health, where I was a researcher, that was always what it was about. It was about being with other people and that, and that it was a mutual experience, a kind of self-discovery and a discovery of, of the wholeness of both people and of the relationship. Now, that's what medicine ultimately should be about, too. You know, what's happening now is that many of the students, students I teach at Georgetown and young doctors who come to Center for Mind-Body Medicine trainings, who would, when I was in medical school 50 years ago, would have gone into psychiatry. They're now going into family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics, internal medicine, rehab medicine, because what they say to me is, we actually have more time and pay more attention to patients in those specialties than, than, than psychiatrists seem to. So, I, you know, I, unfortunately, psychiatry, not for all psychiatrists, of course, but it has become in many ways diminished and less holistic, less integrative for too many psychiatrists than some of the other professions. Now, with trauma, um, I, I think you need to, if you're looking for help uh, and you're looking for help from other people, first of all, I think that it, we shouldn't over-medicalize psychological trauma. The work that the work that we've done around the world with people who've been severely traumatized by war, by um, by school shootings, by climate-related disasters in Haiti, Puerto Rico, Northern California, all over, that much of the work that's being done and that's so successful is being done by people we trained who are not physicians, who are not psychologists, who are not clinical social workers. Some of them are. Many of them are school teachers or school counselors or leaders of women's groups. So the approach that I'm describing in the transformation can be learned, first of all, can be learned as a self-care approach, and it can be learned by all different kinds of practitioners and people who are committed to helping other people so that you can learn this approach. And if you want, you can learn how to share it with other people. And I think this is really 
the sort of fundamental care that should be available to everyone. So you mentioned you mentioned we're working in, in Parkland, uh, where the shootings were at, uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. We've now trained about 300 people in Parkland and other parts of Broward County, Florida, where Parkland is located, to use this work, to use it with kids, with parents, with uh, teachers, with school staff, with first responders. And, and people are doing this work at a very high level with one another. Some of them have a lot of psychological and or psychiatric training. Others don't have so much, but they're committed to learning on themselves. They're committed to sharing what they're doing with others. And they're committed to receiving mentorship and supervision from our Center for Mind-Body Medicine faculty. So I'm saying we need to look more widely at who can be helpful with trauma. And one thing I want to say is that, and this is really apropos of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, if you're looking for a therapist or a doctor to work with you, you've got to feel that sense of connection, that sense of empathy, that sense of reciprocity. Otherwise, they're not likely to be of such great help to you. I, I want and I think you have one of the things, and I know this is difficult when when one is traumatized, but you really have to use your intuition and your imagination and your critical faculties to decide if this person is the right person for you. And one thing I would suggest uh, very strongly is that you want a person who allows you and invites you to be as vulnerable as you need to feel, and at the same time, someone who appreciates the strengths that you have and is willing to teach you how to understand and take care of yourself, not to make you dependent on them, but to give you the skills and the tools you need to care for yourself. Jim, can you share with me and with listeners what the process is um, as someone uh might recognize that they have a trauma, starts to do the work to heal the trauma. I mean, it's not like the event goes away. So to some extent, we're talking about somebody becomes a new person, women who have been raped, for example, and I'm seeing them and caring for them in my practice, will say, I am a different person now than I was before. Someone who had uh, a cancer diagnosis will say, I was a different person then than I am now. Something happens, the trauma is, it becomes a part of us, and, and, and it may even guide us in our lives, but it doesn't have to rule us. So what is, what is that internal unfolding and awareness that happens, and how does one come to live a life that's whole in the setting of having experienced a, a, a trauma with a capital T, one of the big life traumas? Well, I, I think the first thing is to recognize that we have been traumatized, that we are going through something that's enormously challenging. For example, the, you mentioned cancer, that the cancer diagnosis is traumatizing. It's overwhelming. It's very distressing. And that needs to be honored. I mean, there's in our culture, you know, there is this idea that we often have, no, okay, I'm just going to take care of it. I'm going to move straight ahead. I'm not going to let it phase me. We kind of stuff down the feelings, the fear, the anger, the frustration, the uncertainty. And, and I think we have to honor those feelings and, and respect them. Sometimes we may not know that trauma is at work. One of the things that I often see, uh, is that people, and perhaps particularly, it's particularly uh, evident with many women who are feeling, you know, very nervous and very suspicious, and they're keeping a distance from other people, and, um, you know, particularly in their relationship with men, they, they don't feel at all comfortable, and they may not understand what's going on. They mean, well, why am I like this? I feel kind of strange. And what they may need to do is to allow themselves to perhaps honor the fact that something has happened to them that makes them feel that way. So one way or another, whether you're recognizing the actual situation that's presenting itself like a diagnosis of cancer, or you're reflecting on why I may be behaving in a way that's 
you know, uncomfortable and, and doesn't feel right, that I think we have to become aware of the trauma. So that's the first thing. And then the second is to know that it's possible to move through and beyond that trauma that other people have, have done. it. That's one of the reasons I, that I tell so many stories uh, in the transformation, because what I'm saying is that other people who are more or less like you have moved through situations that are more or less like the ones that you've been in and have not only been able to free themselves from their kind of clutches or dead hand of trauma, but they've been able to move ahead with their lives and they've been able to uh, feel more whole and more fulfilled perhaps than they ever have before. And then, so that hope is important to be there. And in the transformation, I teach us a technique with some drawings of drawing yourself with your biggest problem and drawing yourself with a solution to the problem, which often is a first glimpse for people that it's possible to have hope. The other thing is to begin to use techniques, and we talked about two of them, the soft belly breathing and the shaking and dancing, that give people a direct experience, I can make a difference in how I feel. And what I find is if I, you know, people do the soft belly breathing for eight or 10 minutes, 70 or 80% of people who do it for the first time, whether they do it in a workshop with me or they do it reading a book I've written, they notice a change. And that message is much more important than anybody giving them a lecture because it says in a way that people experience that I can experience for myself, I can make a difference in how I feel. So, so many of the techniques that I teach have a specific benefit, maybe quieting the fight or flight response or breaking up the freeze response and the tension. But there's a more general message. And the message is you can do something about what's going on. And all of the techniques, there may be, I don't know, 20, 25, something like that in the transformation, reinforce that message. So, for example, if you go for a walk, outside, if you find a place in nature, and if you live in the city, you can still go to a park, uh, you can still find a park to walk around it, you are likely to notice that you feel a little more relaxed. And what's happening, we know from scientific studies, is your levels of stress hormones are going down, that you're breathing a little more deeply, that you're walking a little more easily when you're in nature than when you're on the pavement in a, in a city. So people get the ex direct experience of being able to do something about their trauma. And then as time goes on and they become more in balance, physiologically, psychologically, they're able to use their imagination to create new possibilities for themselves to begin, for example, to appreciate much more the ordinary events of daily life. Mindful eating is a wonderful way to do that. Walking mindfully is a way to do that. Taking a bath, taking a nice bath with some you know, essential oils in the bath and maybe Epsom salts to relax you. Oh my God, I'm feeling my body again. So it's step by step by step. And as those steps go on, as people become more aware, one of the things that happens is they also become more compassionate toward other people. And this is a kind of natural unfolding. In the psychological literature, this kind of compassion is described as a, an as integral part of post-traumatic growth. So when we've been traumatized, if we can you know, if we can sort of embrace the kind of healing process that we do in our work around the world and that I teach in the transformation, naturally, we become more open, more curious and more compassionate to other people who are also going through their own trauma and more connected to those people. And those connections, in turn, are more healing and more satisfying to us. Tim, it's a beautiful journey. And you used a couple of words that really stood out to me about the experience and feeling of trauma, which is that sense of overwhelm and distress that happen at the same time. 
And so many people I know who have gone through trauma, so many patients that come to me with physical illnesses and we trace their story back to trauma, really feel like in that moment of trauma, they lost all power. They lost all control. And it's like they just were free falling. And this ability to be able to reclaim some self sense of, of agency, that belief that you can make a difference is so phenomenal to me. Uh, that, that, that idea that we can actually, I wrote it down. I, I wrote down what you said. I can make a difference in how I feel. And what a powerful mantra to say every day. I can make a difference in how I feel. Yes, exactly. That is so crucial. And that, that really, for so many people, that's the beginning of healing. It's a revelation. It means you're no longer helpless and you're no longer hopeless. I mean, you can, that's the antidote that you're experiencing the fact that you can make a difference. Yeah. Jim, we're living, go ahead. Sorry. It's the, the work that you do with patients and that you also do with clinicians is really important because I know that your work is grounded in that and that what you're teaching and that, and that's what needs to, you know, if we're going to have clinicians who can truly help people, that lesson has to go very deeply in the education, whether they're psychologists, social workers, physicians, nurses, dietitians, whoever they are, they really need to understand that. Well, we're really not taught that at any time in our lives. We're not, we're not as a culture, uh, typically educated about how we eat affects how we feel, whether we sleep affects how we feel. Although I think we know it intuitively, especially if we're paying attention, you eat something and you don't feel well, you don't sleep and you're cranky the next day or you're craving coffee and sugar. But in general, we're not really taught that it's something that we have any agency over. And certainly physicians are not taught to make the connect the dots between what we eat and how we feel, uh, how we breathe and how we feel, whether we spend time in nature, the literature is there, the science is there, but it's not translating enough into clinical medicine, unfortunately. Well, that, that's part, that's our job. It really. is. <laughs> and ours and other people's is really to, to bring that into medical education. But I want to, but for your viewers, don't wait for your doctor to learn these things. Yeah. <laughs> it's time. I mean, if you, you know, obviously you want to find people who are sympathetic, who can be there for you, whether they're physicians or therapists, but really ultimately this is something you can do for yourself. One of the things that I've seen again and again is that so many people, even people with, who are very young, who have very little formal education are able to put together this kind of program that I describe in the transformation and use it for themselves and do it beautifully. And also often enough and with great benefit to do it with some friends, to sort of work with other people who may have been through similar situations and to learn together to help themselves. Jim, I'd like to switch gears a little bit in terms of um, who we're talking about and, and shift from us as collective individuals and women to parents, teachers, um, others who are working with kids. You know, we, we've been talking about being able to make a difference in how we feel and the vulnerability that happens when one is in a traumatic situation. And yet now with uh, what's going on around our country with just these random acts of violence and very public acts of violence and particularly in schools, but, but it can be a club, it can be a, a movie theater. Um, I feel like as a culture, so many people are living almost in, it's it's such a heightened level of anxiety that I almost feel like it's an anticipatory trauma um, or that we're having a collective level of trauma um, every time another incident happens. And, you know, as we're talking right now, we're recording this in August, parents are facing their kids going back to school now. What can we do on a daily basis to live in this world as healthy whole people when really the natural healthy response is actually anxiety. It, it's normal to be anxious. And how do we help our kids be prepared for the realities of the world? I mean, they're already being prepared, right? I mean, I was reading an article in a magazine about Kevlar backpacks for kids and uh, b- body armor for kids to wear to school. Um, what do we do? How do we live in these times? <laughs> 
I think some of some of what we as a society are doing is preparing them. Some of what we're doing, unfortunately, is just terrifying them. It's true. I think the the first thing for parents, uh, teachers, uh, people who are concerned about kids is to learn how to take care of themselves and to come into balance themselves. So the, all the techniques this is, uh, that we're going to talk about and that we do use to work with kids in schools, the parents need to do this with themselves. It's like the old cliche uh, about the oxygen mask in the airplane. You have mm-hmm. to put it on yourself first before you put it on your children. So the idea is if you're going to help your kids deal with their anxiety, you've got to deal with your own. First of all, you've got to bring yourself into balance, into psychological and physiological balance, so you can simply be there in a calm state with your child as she or he talks to you about what's going on, what they're concerned about, that they're worried about shootings, which the kids are. They're worried about shootings. They're worried about the active shooter drills. Their minds are filled with these things. Well, and I was just reading an article, and I I had sent this to you by email, and then you sent me back something that you wrote that the other kind of um, anxiety that's competing for space in these kids' brains and and beings is now coined eco-anxiety. So kids are learning about global warming and active shooters all in the same day, and it's really quite overwhelming, but it's actually um, overwhelming for adults as well to be facing these challenges, these worries. Well, I, I think that we we need to, as, as they say, we need to get a grip ourselves. I mean, yes, the, the cha- but the, the challenges are enormous. They're often terrifying. We need to sit with them, to see them, and then ideally to do something about them. That's one of the great... Uh, one of the great solutions to this level of anxiety is actually acting on behalf of ourselves and behalf of others to address these challenges. So, and as with our kids, we need to quiet ourselves. We need to come into balance so that we can hear them. Because when parent, when we're anxious as parents, we're not hearing our kids. You know, we're either, we don't either, sometimes we don't want to hear them or we want, we want them to, suck it up and just move ahead or else we get anxious with them and just make them more anxious. So we need to come into balance ourselves and then we need to teach the kids some of the same techniques that we're using to help them deal with the anxieties in school. And and I agree with you, the level of anxiety in kids in schools is overwhelming. It's not only the anxiety about school shootings, which affects 80, 90% of kids across the United States. They are either very or somewhat anxious about there being a shooting in their school. This is a recent Pew survey. I mean, that's really astonishing. Wild. But in addition, there are all the other anxieties. I mean, the anxieties about school shootings feed into the other anxieties. You mentioned sort of the long-term anxiety about the about climate change. But kids are so worried about grades and how other kids are going to think about them and where they're going to go to college and if they're going to make a living, that these are, in my experience of working with kids over the last 50 years and before that, being a kid myself, the level of anxiety is much higher now. And the level of stimulation, which is you know often stimulating agitation all the internet stimulation that goes on is contributing to it so kids need and not only kids but teachers and school staff need comprehensive programs of ways to express ways and places to safely express what they're concerned about and an opportunity to learn the tools and techniques for dealing with their stress and dealing with the trauma that has come to them or that might come to them. And it needs to be um, school-wide and community-wide. This is not a matter of, you know, selecting out that anxious kid in the class or telling that teacher who gets panicky to go see a shrink. (laughs) This is a problem for the whole school and the whole community. And as we've been working in Broward County, uh, over the last year and a half since the February 18th shootings, February 18th, 14th, 2018 shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, 
We're working with the 3,500 kids at Stoneman Douglas, with all the teachers, with the parents, and we're gradually extending our work with the blessing and wonderful collaboration of school superintendent Robert Runcie to the whole county. There's 270,000 kids and 30,000 employees. It's a little process that's going on little by little, but the understanding and the wisdom is that this is a community-wide challenge. And this is really important. It's important for us to realize it and to understand that we're not alone. It's not just on me or you or that you know, anxious kid over there or that worried parent in the other place. It's a problem for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us. So nobody's to blame. This is just the way it is. And the solution has to include all of us and give all of us an active role in helping and healing ourselves and each other. And this should be part as much a part of basic education in our schools as reading and writing and learning how to use a computer are. So you know, I think this has got we've got to expand our notion of education to include this kind of approach to self-care and, and mutual support. Jim, you talked about a number of different techniques, um, mindful eating, soft belly breathing, drawing, meditation, shaking and dancing. And all five of those can be done with children who are verbal and able to pick up a crayon. And so these are things that parents can do a mindfulness breakfast before everyone rushes off to school or a mindfulness gratitude moment at dinner, some drawing together, um, soft belly breathing, putting on music and dancing it out. I know that these are things that we do in our home, you do in your home. And uh, I think, you know, just to emphasize to those of you who are listening, you know, I've, I've known Jim for, Jim for quite a number of years now. You guys have come to know me. We, we walk our talk. It doesn't mean that, well, I can't speak for Jim. It doesn't mean I never have anxiety or worries. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to invite you to participate in these activities with your family at home if you have kids or do it yourself, uh, introduce it to your workplace. Uh, There's so many ways to shift the way we live our lives to incorporate these techniques. Absolutely, absolutely. That anyone, anyone who's watching us can learn these techniques, learn to use them. and, And as you learn them and make them a part of yourself, so that you really see both the benefits, but you also see sometimes that it may be challenging to eat yeah. mindfully. So you need to see both the benefits and the challenges. And once you've internalized that, of course, share it with children. Young children love all these things. Teenagers get a little bit of self-conscious, a little bit self-conscious. But one of the ways to work with teenagers that a number of parents and uh, that we've worked with in Broward County and Texas and Pine Ridge Reservation and Louisiana, many places we've worked, they work with a group of kids. They have their kids come over with their friends and then they teach them some of these techniques because the kids are going, because it's easier sometimes for teenagers. Some teenagers will do it with a parent or with both parents, but some of them like to have a few other kids around. But anybody who learns these techniques and practices them themselves can use them with their kids. Jim, before we go... Um, there's a story that you shared with me uh, some years ago, and I believe you have, is it a 60-minute special uh, where you share a little bit more of this story? But um, first of all, I just want to clarify, Jim and I are looking at each other. We're on Skype. So every time he says viewers, I don't want you guys to think you're missing a video. You're not missing a video. <laughs> I mean, you kind of are because I'm just like in my frumpy shirt at home with my hair pulled up in a little clip and Jim's Jim's chilling in a t-shirt over here with the rain in the background. So it would be an amusing video, but um, it is just audio. But Jim, would you share the story that you shared with me of the little girl um, in, it was in Gaza and uh, the power of drawing that and the transformation she had. It's so, it's such a moving story. It's a, um, yeah, it's a beautiful story. It's one I retell in the transformation, and and people can watch the sixty minutes video that we'll they put did. the link bef- Website, below. Oh, link on cnbn.org. Yeah, so this is um, 
we, we've done a lot of work in both Israel and Gaza for the last almost 15 years now. And I've uh, trained 500 people in Israel in our model and 900 in Gaza. And after the 2014 war between Hamas and Israel, we, we really uh, had a, stepped up our activity in Gaza. There were 500 kids were killed in Gaza. It was really terribly traumatic time. There was also traumatic in the south of Israel. And one of the communities that we worked in in Gaza is a place called Shujaya, which suffered terribly during the war. And one of the groups, we, we do a lot of our work in small groups, and one of the groups was led by a school teacher. And in the group were eight children who were aged from, I think, seven to 10, all of whom had had their fathers killed in that 2014 war. And one of the kids in the group was a little girl, nine-year-old girl named Azar. And when she came into this group, uh, and it was going to be nine sessions where people learn these techniques that we've been talking about. Uh, in, in the first group, we had the kids do drawings. And we have adults do drawings, too. And, and Azar, when she drew herself with her biggest problem, she drew herself in a landscape where there were planes, Israeli planes flying overhead. They were bombing her house, which was being destroyed on the ground next to her house was her father who was lying there in a puddle of blood. Next to him were two uncles who were also dead. And then a little further away was her aunt, also dead. And then there was a czar off in the corner, this tiny little stick figure with a turned down mouth. Then the next drawing we asked her to do was to draw yourself with your problems solved. And usually that's a kind of hopeful drawing. In Azar's case, she drew herself in the grave with her father. And she said, the only solution to me is to die and to be with my father once again, because I loved him so much. There is nothing for me in this life. This is a nine-year-old girl five months after the war is over. She's in our group with a teacher leading the group with these seven other kids. All of them have lost their fathers. And she's learning soft belly breathing. She's doing shaking and dancing. She's doing uh, guided imagery to help herself. She's doing mindful eating. She's drawing a picture of her family and learning to call on family strengths. All the techniques I teach in the transformation, she's doing in this group. In the ninth and last group, she and all the other kids do drawings. Once again, this time when she draws herself, she's a big girl and she occupies a good portion of the page. She has these brown flowing curls, which she really does in real life. She's in a skirt and a blouse. She's a big girl. There's an arrow coming from her heart, from her chest, and it goes through a heart and in the heart, she's written in the English she's learning in school, I love nature. And the arrow is going to this beautiful tree, great green tree and passing by flowers. And that's who she is now. The next drawing, when she draws sort of who she wants to be and where she wants to go, instead of drawing herself in the grave with her father, she draws herself with a stethoscope in her ears. And the stethoscope, the resonator of the stethoscope is on the chest of someone who is lying on an examining table. And I say, what's going on here, Azar? And she said, well, I am a heart doctor and that's my patient and I'm taking care of his heart. So beautiful. And I say, well, there are five other figures in this drawing. Who, who are they? And she says, those are also my patients. They're waiting for me. After the war, there are so many people in Gaza who have hurt hearts. So that's the transformation. And nobody, this is little girl who was ready to die. After nine groups, she sees herself not only as wanting to live and living fully, but as wanting to help other people. Now, no one said to her, Azar, you should want to help other people, or you should feel better, or you should do this or that. This is the natural healing process that this approach, that this approach 
that's in the transformation can bring out and does bring out in adults as well as children. And Azar is in fact, I have a follow-up a couple of years later. First of all, she went home and taught her parents all the techniques she learned. Second of all, she's studying very hard in school and she is doing very well and she does hope to be a doctor. So this is this is what's possible. And it's so, you know, every time I think about it, I'm, you know, I'm both moved to tears and delighted. This is what's possible for all of us. It's so beautiful, Jim. You know, years ago, um, this is about 20 years ago now, I had a woman, and this was when I first started using drawing in my practice. I had, uh, because I was a midwife, I always kept paper and crayons in my office for kids to draw when mom was in getting her prenatal visit. And uh, this one particular woman came in and she had given birth about five years prior and she went into labor away on a vacation. And she's a big woman. She's, you know, kind of like Scandinavian build. And she went into labor a couple of weeks early and it wasn't where she had anticipated giving birth. She was on a small island uh, on the coast of Georgia. She had to get to the mainland to get to the hospital. It was already very chaotic. And when she got to the hospital, um, they told her her baby was too big. She was never going to be able to push it out. And really, everything kind of went from chaos to complete out-of-control mayhem. And she had an emergency cesarean really no indication for it from everything I could tell from the medical records. And it felt very abusive and traumatic for her. And interestingly, birth trauma is becoming much more prevalent now, uh, particularly in the U.S. where 34% of women will have a C-section and many mm -hmm. won't need it or won't want it. And for many other reasons, abuses that happen in the hospital and the way women are treated in the hospital, the way women's pain is treated and so many things. So she came to me, she had put off having another baby for quite a number of years because she was really terrified of that experience happening again. And she became pregnant and was having planning to have another hospital birth, but throughout the course of the pregnancy, she could see that she was just being guided right toward another cesarean, not being respected. The fact that she had a traumatic experience before was not being addressed. She was kind of being dismissed as overreactive or overly sensitive or having these romantic ideas about how she was going to give birth. So she was sitting in my office telling me the story. She's now about 34 weeks pregnant, deciding that she'd like to have a home birth. And, you know, as you said, sometimes we have to follow our intuition and follow our imagination. And we have to do that as practitioners sometimes, too, uh -huh. or oftentimes. And I saw the crayons out of the corner of my eyes. And I said, I have an idea. <laughs> because she was terrified to give birth in the hospital. She was terrified she was going to need to have another section. But she had no confidence in her body. So she didn't believe that she could birth vaginally either. So I said, I'm going to give you a, a little practice to do. And there's no judgment in the artwork. This is not meant to be a Rembrandt or Mary Cassatt. Just, you know, kind of go with your feelings. Try not to judge it. But can you draw yourself birthing vaginally? And over the next five weeks, she'd bring, I had her come in for a visit with me every week to, because we were now on a bit of a short course to undoing this trauma that she had experienced to having potentially a home birth. And um, a different situation than Azar, um, but certainly we worked with this drawing week after week. And the first couple of weeks, she couldn't do anything but this, her laying flat on her back and a scalpel coming toward her belly. But then over the course of the weeks, it was this beautiful transformation. It's a perfect word for it. Where finally, the last picture, about maybe three, four days before she was due, was this, it just gives me the chills when I, when, it, just like I got the chills when you told Azar's last, you know, the picture of her, of her, of her, her, her last story, um, was this very triumphant kind of goddess-like image of a woman standing up. You could only see her from the belly down. You could see her cesarean scar. Um, you know, you could see her legs kind of in a standing squat with this baby's torso coming out with her hands reaching down. And sure enough, the next day she went into labor 
and had a beautiful vaginal birth. She actually was semi-sitting on her bed, but not, and not laying down. But she really felt like that process, that artwork process was almost like, um, uh, almost like reworking her cellularly, rewiring her physical and her, her cognitive expectation of what was possible for her. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful that you were able to do that. And that's, that is the power, the power of the imagination and the, and definitely affirming that mind body connection. Absolutely. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, I have a little insider thing that I'm going to share, which is one of the most special things in my life right now is that Jim fondly calls me the godmama of his book, The Transformation. And I have been with him in this process of him creating it from when he first started talking about writing it. I think it's been about three or four years now through mm -hmm. working with an agent and a publisher and just rallying for this book to get born. And um, it's a real honor to have been involved in the process of this book, even in my tiny, tiny way coming to life. But as a proud godmama, um, I really would encourage you to read it. It's something that you will be doing for yourself. It's something that you'll be doing for your family. If you have children, if you have any family at all, um, you know, as Jim said, none of us get through this life without some trauma. If you have, we all need to come and rub your belly <laughs> for the magic luck, but truly most of us have some form or another of loss or grief or overwhelm or situation that has left us feeling less empowered and less in control and sometimes truly deeply um, psychologically and physically traumatized. And there's so many healing tools in this book, so many stories. And for those of you who would like to actually become trained in the techniques that Jim is talking about, um, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine offers a number of different opportunities. You do not have to be a medical professional at all to get this this training. And everyone I know who's gone through it, and I will be going through it at some point myself, I've been writing books while Jim's been writing books too and haven't gotten to the training myself, but everyone I know personally, whether a patient or another colleague who has done the training has said it's been transformative for their personal life for their own healing and their own story, and also for what they bring to their relationships, to their communities, and for those who are health professionals, to their patients. And then another thing that's really exciting is um, Jim and I are going to be teaching a weekend together next spring, uh, spring of 2020, at Kripalu, specifically on trauma and transformation and healing for health professionals um, and that can be any number of different types of health professionals. So certainly I'll let you know about that through my mailing list. So make sure you're on that just by downloading anything you want to download over at the, at my website. Uh, I would recommend if trauma is something that you are trying to heal in your life, um, the adaptogens ebook would be a good place to start. So lots and lots of great resources. The transformation is coming out the, what date is it? The 13th of September? September 10th. September 10th. You'd think I'd know my God baby's birthday. Barnes and Noble or Amazon or any of those places, but it'll be in bookstores September 10th. So if you're listening to this ahead of time, uh, which <laughs> you will be the week before, uh, if you're listening in real time, you can go ahead and pre-order it uh, through, as Jim said, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and any other booksellers. And um, it's wonderful. And I will put the link for Jim's uh, uh, on air story where he shares Azar's pictures and, and more of that. And I'll put the links for the Center for Mind Body Medicine and specifically for the trainings, which happen usually what twice a year, Jim? Level one and level two? Yeah, initial training advanced. We're also, you and I are also going to be doing mind, mood, and food in September at Kripal. Yes, we'll be doing that too. I'm one of the faculty at um, Center for Mind Body Medicine. So we, we travel around. We have a, we have, we take our show on the road. Jim, thank you so much for being in my life, for being such a healing presence in so many people's lives and for sharing your wisdom and experience with us today on Natural MD Radio. 
Thank you, Aviva. And thank you for being the godmama of my book and my, my pal and my friend. Love you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you next week on Natural MD Radio. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.